The following is a conversation with Max Marchioni. Max is the founder of an online community called Next Chapter, where curious young people can learn, share knowledge, and create. He is studying full time at university, has interned at Goldman Sachs, and currently works as an apprentice at a venture capital fund. Expect to hear about the importance of learning, some tips on time management, what on earth an NFT is, and the sorts of things to consider when making an important life decision, such as what to do for a career. All right, Max, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. First of all, how are you? I'm really well, Will. Thank you a lot for having me. I'm really keen to be here and really keen uh, to chat. Awesome. Well, I wanted to start talking today about time management. You're doing a lot of things at the moment. You've got your 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 feet in many different areas. You're studying full-time at university, uh, statistics, finance, and mathematics. You've interned at Goldman and Sachs. You're working in venture capital, and you're the co-founder of an online community, Next Chapter. How do you time manage all these different things? How do you make sure that you're balancing everything between social life and between university and between the work that you're doing? How do you make sure that you maintain energy in all those different areas. That's interesting because I, I say this to people and I say that I don't think I'm awfully self-disciplined and I never really feel like I'm trying to balance lots of things. I, I really just think what it comes down to for me is matching what I'm doing to my nature. My nature is that I love combining learning and action and constantly doing things and constantly working on different tasks. So I found like personally that novelty and that change works really well for me. Uh, and that's taken a little, little bit of like self-discovery to get there. And since that works for me, I, I lean into that. Um, so I, that's probably not super actionable. So I will get to your question on how I think about time management more generally. And there are probably like five actionables or like pillars I think of under time management. The first is that I've always tried to make speed a habit. So I feel like if you get into the habit of doing everything really quickly, you can get more done. And that can be having systems in place. For example, I use VimCal for my calendar. That's an app that makes it faster on my calendar. Or I took the time to learn to touch type and get uh, really fast at typing because it's a frequent task you do. So that's making speed a habit. The second thing is I think more about energy management than time management. And what I mean by that is I... To the, for the most part, do tasks I feel like doing. Like if I wake up and don't feel like doing math questions, but I feel like writing a blog article, I will do that. I'll lean into what I feel like doing because then I'll be able to get it done more productively. So I think that like frame of energy management has been really useful for me. Um, third point would be the saying that I live by, which is that the small things done consistently are the big things. And... What I mean by that is it's a marathon, not a sprint. And that, uh, I, I guess like one way I kind of think about it is if, if it's midnight on a Sunday night and I feel like work, I will, I'll work. Whereas if it's 12 p.m. on a Wednesday and I can't uh, muster up any energy to work, I probably won't. So by constantly doing the small things, it gives me buffer time to, um, it gives me buffer time to then get some more done. Fourth thing I'd say, and it's this saying, which is, I think by Ray Dalio, he says, we can have anything we want in life, but we can't have everything. 
And I, I, I kind of think like that's pretty relevant in that uh, things require sacrifice, right? You mentioned the word balance. And I think, I think there, there are parts of my life, like I used to play a lot more sport than I do now. And now I've consciously made the decision that I won't have the time to do that as well as all the other things. So I think prioritizing um, is really valuable as well. And the final point for me is just getting really good at learning. Like so much of what we do requires learning. So that is something that's made me more productive as well. Yeah, learning's such an important thing. And I, you've written a lot about that topic. So I kind of want to push on that a little bit further and ask you, you've said before that learning is the most important skill for productivity. And I guess you're also talking then about how productivity and prioritization is important in balancing things. Why do you think learning is the most important skill for productivity? And so that's because learning allows you to acquire every other skill. And what I mean by that is that if you want to get better, some people say the most important skill is sales. Some say it's communication. Some say it's time management. Some might say it's coding. The thing is, if you get good at learning, learning uh, is, is the precursor to all those other things. Because if you're good at learning, you can get up to speed on everything else faster. So if learning is so important, if we need to spend like so much of our lives learning, in my mind, uh, the, the frame I had when I was in year 11, 12, and then on my gap year was, how about I get really damn good at learning? It's something I'm always going to do. So I shouldn't just approach it ad hoc. I should, pro- I should approach it with structure. So taking that approach, um, there were several steps I went through to learn how to learn, to become a more effective learner. I guess like some, some pointers that could help. So there's this um, book called Ultra Learning. I think it might be by Scott Young. There's The 4-Hour Chef by Tim Ferriss as well, which is another great book on learning how to learn. And then Tim Ferriss has some podcasts as well on learning how to learn, which you can probably search up. And I found those books and then a few other things have made me a more efficient learner, which in turn speeds up the acquisition of every other skill. Do you- Do you purely look at learning as utilitarian? Are you trying to learn something to get a particular return on investment? Or do you think it's important also to look at learning a little bit more philosophically and actually consider learning as learning for learning's sake almost so that you can become better at learning, even though what you're learning, the topic or the area might not necessarily pay off in any measurable way? Interesting. Um, I see learning as utilitarian but i don't think we should learn things only that have an immediate utility and i'll give a couple uh tidbits to flesh that out i I like this saying that you should learn not for information but to understand so even if you're reading philosophy or even if you're reading physics or biology and you have no interest in those areas, even if they have no utility to what you're actually doing, learning to understand the fundamental principles or the, the axioms in each of those areas, not, not for the information, but for the actual understanding, I think is really foundational. And to what you said, I don't think there is necessarily an immediate ROI But I think if we are very broad with how we approach understanding the fundamental principles of the world, then 
there is like compounding that happens underneath the surface and there is an ROI, that, ROI down the road. I also caveat that this works for me, right? There'll be some people who get so much joy in the learning, like the learning purely for learning's sake. They might be scholars, they might be researchers. And for them, my answer probably doesn't apply. Yeah, I think, I think that's definitely a good point. There's a lot of people who might be a lot more high in openness traits. And so they're a lot more, they get a lot more value and a lot more joy out of diving into really deep holes, spending hours on the internet, searching further and further into something that might not have any application, but they just get joy out of that. So I think you really need to understand your nature, understand what you enjoy doing and, and it really depends on the individual. So I guess it's a good answer in the sense that yes, learning is utilitarian, but you shouldn't always think, is this immediately going to pay off? So I think it keeps definitely a lot of op options open there. Really, really good point there. And something like I mentioned at the start, and I'm sure we'll come back to, which is that a lot of advice from podcasts, et cetera, sound prescriptive. They sound like, oh, this is the way to do it. But I think like the only prescriptive thing I can say is that you have to find out what works for you and you have to find your nature and match what you do to that. Definitely. That's, that's very good advice because it's, it's very easy to get caught up in the podcast world or, or through books and start thinking, well, because they're doing it this way, I need to do it the same way and try and mimic someone who has a completely different outlook on life, a completely different personality. But if you can take their explanation of what they enjoy doing, understand that that's a product of how they're built and how they're put together, and then take the time to explore how what your interests are and what works for you, then I think it's a lot more beneficial for you. Yeah, for sure. Speaking about learning and specific things that you might enjoy learning, do you have three influential books or three books that have been most influential to you over the course of, of all your learning, whether it be in high school, whether it be in university? Um, there are many books. So Poor Charlie's Almanac, it's uh, about Charlie Munger, he is an absolute gem of a book. There are two speeches in it alone uh, which make it worth it. And you can actually find the speeches online. You don't need to buy the book for however much it costs. So those speeches are the psychology of human misjudgment. That's the first one. And then the second one is called Turning $2 million into $2 trillion. And I really recommend reading those in that order rather than in some other order. So you can find them online. That'd be the yeah, first book, yeah. Charlie's Almanac. Second book would be um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's a classic. Um, it's really just a list of common sense advice, but common sense isn't all that common. Then Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. I probably put onto the list as well. There are a lot of books out there that talk about behavioral psychology, but Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow is in my mind by far the best and the most comprehensive. So I'd recommend that. Uh, as a bonus book, as a fourth book, I'd recommend Principles by Ray Dalio. There are probably others I'd recommend. I actually recently made a Twitter thread on my top 10 books. So if you find uh, me on Twitter, you should be able to find that. Maybe I think um, I, I posted around the 9th of March. Okay. We can even link it in after, after the video. So, um, right. I'm definitely a huge fan of Ray Dalio's principles. That's one of my favorite as well. I think anyone who's interested into even running a business or just being involved in some sort of community can take a lot from his ideas of idea meritocracy, radical open-mindedness. Do you have any comments on radical 
open-mindedness in particular uh, and, and I guess its usefulness for people who might not understand what it is? Yeah, so uh, Ray Dalio's organization is really interesting. Bridgewater is what it's called and they operate under the principle of radical transparency. That's the first one. So basically all meetings are televised to the whole firm. Anyone can join any meeting. Anyone can read strategy docs, etc. And then they have radical open-mindedness, which is the idea that you should and could accept feedback from everyone. And that the most junior person in the organization can originate an idea which is taken on by the CIO, the chief investment officer. Now, I think radical open-mindedness is really interesting because I think most people think they are more open-minded than they are. Um, and the catch is that if you are closed-minded, you don't know that you're closed-minded. Like that's the definition of being closed-minded. So it's really, really hard to become more open-minded. I would say the first step in realizing you're closed-minded is getting feedback from others. Uh, if others tell you you're closed-minded and you dismiss them, you're like, no, no, I don't agree. That's probably a sign you're closed-minded, right? So I think the first step of becoming more open-minded is actually trying to get a sense check from others whether you are closed-minded. And then to become more open-minded, um, it, it's a deliberate practice. It's really hard, uh, but it's a deliberate practice. And I actually wrote an article about it on my blog, which you could find. I think that's at my name, so maxmarchioni.com. I think it's in the left-hand column when you visit the website. Yeah, definitely. And I think that takes a lot of humility to actually seek out critical critical words or actually ask people the opinions of what you're doing. I think it takes a lot of humility and you need to even approach that with open-mindedness in itself. And so it's kind of a catch-22 where in order to become more open-minded, you need to be more open-minded to things. But it's really just building those habits over time and actually pursuing um, pursuing people for their thoughts on you. There's a, a couple of things on that. So one thing I do like once a year is I will ask, call it five to 10 friends for what are some of my strengths and what are some things I should be doing better. And that's something I'll try and do annually. And then there's another question that Adam Powick, the CEO of Deloitte Australia said is really good to ask, which is ask, how do others perceive me? Because I feel like it's, it's really hard put yourself in other's shoes and see how they perceive you. And sometimes you just need to ask. So I think that's a really powerful question to systematically ask friends. Definitely. I think that's, if you can set the systems in place, then it's all, you're almost halfway there because you've, you've got over that hurdle of actually making the steps to do it because you've, you've almost scheduled them and you've made a commitment to do them. Uh, you mentioned your, your blog there. And I think, that's a fantastic thing for anyone to go and check out online. And I'm sure we'll link it in the description as well. One of the pieces that I loved that you wrote was called Career Manifesto. And you you dove into everything that people should consider, not necessarily in advice, but at least things that you try and consider when deciding on a career. I was wondering if you could go into depth for people who may not have read it and explain what your th thought process is around choosing a career and what you wrote in that Career Manifesto. Yeah, so I think I broke it into four, I call them heuristics, but just think of that as like frameworks or ways of thinking to decide what you should do with your career. And they are probably in like decreasing order of importance. The first one is find an interest 
that's compatible with your skills. Another way of phrasing that is match your career to your nature, which I think we spoke about just before. Or another way of phrasing that uh, that Naval Ravikant talks about is feel, find what feels like play to you, but looks like work to others. And that has two parts, right? It has to feel like play to you, which means that you're probably good at it. You find it easy, enjoyable, but it also has to look like work to others. And what that means or what that implies is that it's something that society values. So I think that combination is powerful. So that's the first frame, find an interest compatible with your skills. I think the second heuristic I mentioned was choose jobs where you can learn the most. And part of the reason for this is that the world is constantly changing and it's very hard to design your career starting from the end point and trying to strategically work from there. I think an easier way of doing it is just constantly trying to learn the most. Um, and then, and then um, if you learn the most, I think, I think the world in the long term is meritocratic and the world will recognize that you can add value through what you've learned. So that's the second thing, like select tasks where you can learn the most. The third part I mentioned was seize anything that looks like an opportunity or actually choose jobs for the opportunities they create. Choose the option that creates more options. And if something comes to you that looks like it could be a massive opportunity, just say yes. Like those sorts of lucky breaks are the things that are truly life-changing. And if it even looks remotely like an opportunity, I would say um, try and bias to saying yes. I think the final part of this framework was select riskier jobs when you're younger. And the reason why is like, if, if I started a startup today and I completely failed, it wouldn't really matter. Like I might lose, go from like $10,000 to $0, right? But it's not, that's not life-changing. You can make that back pretty quickly when you're younger. I don't have a family to support, et cetera. Say you're a 40 year old and you sink 10% of your net worth with that, which at the time is call it $100,000 into the startup instead of $10,000. Well, now if you lose that and you have a family and you're sending your kids to school, it's much harder to take those risks. So I think the, the fourth part is select riskier jobs when you're younger. On, on the actual piece, which is also on my website in the left bar, I flesh out these points and I think a couple others in a bit more detail. And then I recently wrote a piece titled something like the top five things I learned in 2021. And in there, I dive into the match, your career to your nature points in more detail. Yeah, I really want to touch on a lot of those individually. Starting with interest, I really liked what you said from Naval about it being you should choose something that you find play but others find work because it's a lot of people, the general message that comes through is do something you're passionate about and people can easily say, well, I'm passionate about a particular sport I enjoy but so is every single other person I know. I'm no good at it and I don't know how to turn that into a career but I really like the idea that by thinking about it instead that what looks like play to you but as a job to everyone else, that might narrow things down a little bit more and point you in the direction of providing value, like you said. And I think that's a really, really good way of reframing it away from just do what makes you happy or just do what pa- makes you passionate. Do something that is you enjoy, but clearly others might not enjoy to the same extent. And I think that really narrows the path. And I think 
that's a really important thing for people to understand and, and to hear rather than just do what you enjoy because that's that's the common thread that's pushed through. Yeah, for sure. And I think it doesn't have to even be something you love per se because if if you choose something you love or a passion and you turn it into your work, right, something I've heard said before is that might no longer become that passion, right? So you say you love cooking and you become a chef. Doing that might strip away all the joy from cooking uh, for you. So I think like the, the follow your passions advice is has like tidbits that are valid, but I think as a broad frame, it's, it's misleading, right? Because people are motivated by more than purely passion. People are motivated by monetary reward. They're motivated by status. They're motivated by working hard and growing something from the ground up. So I think just following your passion doesn't achieve that. But um, thinking of what looks like work to others, thinking of matching your career to your nature, probably or hopefully provide more helpful frames. Definitely. I think the other thing that was really important there that you said is with regards to opportunities. And if you're presented with two doors, it's a lot better to pick the door that opens more doors. That's that old saying. How do you differentiate between, say, two different opportunities and, and figure out which one actually has more opportunities that branch from it? Is there, is there any tips or advice that you might have for people who aren't really sure which one is going to open more opportunities? Because it's not always easy to tell looking into the future. Uh, I guess it does play into what you said about learning. That, that which teaches you more opens more opportunities. But do you have any more thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think there are two well, maybe three parts of a job that create opportunities. The first is, like you said, the skills you learn. Like if you can choose between two jobs, the one which teaches you the more broader generalizable skills is probably the better one to choose. I guess like an example, say you have the option to launch an NFT project and make 200,000 or go into consulting and make 100,000. I would say the skills you're going to learn in consulting are more generalizable. So I would choose that even though I'm going to make less. So I think that's the first frame, look for learning. I think the second way of looking for which job makes the most opportunities, the second way is looking for the people you'll meet through that job. So again, if, I, if we take that consulting versus NFT project idea, um, you're probably going to meet a broader relevant network through consulting than you will through an NFT project. And the reason why is because in an NFT project, a lot of people are anonymous or pseudonymous anyway. So I think meeting people and looking for where the most interesting people are, that opens up a lot of opportunities. And then the third thing that I think is relevant isn't just taking, say, say now you have two consulting jobs, right? Both of them will allow you to meet similar people. Both of them are in consulting, but one of them will, one of them, you know that the firm will be very diligent with making sure that you're learning and very diligent with making sure you're exposed to lots of things. And then the other one, you're probably going to be doing more routine grunt work. I think actually looking for the, the firm that gives you the most opportunity structurally in the type of work you do is also um, a relevant consideration in creating opportunities. 
changing the topic a little bit and you mentioned nfts there one thing i've really wanted to speak to you about is the metaverse web3 nfts cryptocurrency this is an area that you've written a lot about and you seem to have a really strong understanding of let's start with an nft for people who have no clue or have heard the term thousands of times but really don't understand it what is an nft yeah i think all these all these crypto terms just like literally over confuse things so you're probably familiar with the idea of like digital items you've probably played a game before and in that game you might own a gun or you might own a skin or you might um own some sort of digital item and people are probably also familiar with seeing images on the internet an nft is like a digital item could be an image and then it has like a little call it an official certificate that shows that you are the actual owner so really what it is it's a digital item and then alongside it, it has a way of proving that you are the actual owner and how about how would you describe a cryptocurrency to someone who had no understanding of the term? Yeah, so I think the the easiest way of understanding it is literally a currency that's digital. I think if you want to go one layer deeper, it's also decentralized. And what that means, so I'll, I'll let's start with like original currencies, normal currencies are controlled by banks. They're par partly controlled by the government. And that means they are centralized. There are these like central authorities with control over the currency, right? The bank could snap its fingers tomorrow and shut your account off. The government could snap its fingers tomorrow and start printing more money. A cryptocurrency is called decentralized. And what that means is that there is no government. There is no bank. There, is, there aren't any of these intermediaries that can prevent your access or control either the supply or movement of the currency. So taking that back, a cryptocurrency is like a currency that's digital, that is also decentralized. That makes perfect sense. And I think that seems to be a growing trend, decentralization. I think that's something that technological improvement over time is really moving towards everything with nfts and with cryptocurrency and web web3 are all moving towards decentralization as a trend do you think that's something that's going to continue to grow or do you think it's something that will be cut down by different authorities um yeah i think it's really overhyped so like if i asked you putting you on the spot um do you care to use services that are decentralized versus centralized? Like actually posing you that question. Does it like matter much to you? Whichever one allows me to do what I need to do more efficiently, I'll, I'll do that. It really doesn't matter if it's centralized or decentralized. Exactly, right? And I, I would say that's how 99.9% .9 of people think about things. So there's this whole narrative of, oh, how good is decentralization? I would say like 99.9% .9 of the population doesn't care. So. For Web3 to become big, it needs to develop, exactly as you said, products that do things better versus just being decentralized. Decentralization also has a number of things that make it really, really hard to work in practice. So the like a central premise of a fully decentralized world means that every individual runs their own servers at home. It's like a very technical thing. A lot of people probably don't even know what that means, right? Um, 
So I think this whole narrative of the world is becoming more decentralized at the moment is um, quite misplaced because I don't think uh, enough people care to have a decentralized world. Well, you said it right there, the, f- the fact that you need to run your own servers out of your house. A lot of people hear that and they think, no, let's just keep it how it is. It's, it's that resistance to change, which you can't blame people for. And when it's on a mass scale, it makes it very hard for decentralization to take off, at least until the enough, enough advancement is made that it can be more efficient, more productive and more user-friendly. Yeah, that's that. I, I would agree with that. Um, I think, look, I think where crypto becomes interesting is where you can create business models that weren't otherwise possible. And typically that revolves around the incentive mechanisms of crypto. And I guess I'll give an example, right? So I'll give an example of how we're using it in the Next Chapter community. So I run a community called Next Chapter and the idea is like a Slack community. And um, the, the goal is to bring together the most like curious, kind, ambitious people we can find because if you put all these people in one room it's pretty cool what you can create now these sorts of communities have existed for a long time but cryptocurrencies allow us to supercharge the community or change incentives so i'll tell you kind of how that works we're launching a token the next chapter token just for within the community and people who contribute the most earn tokens And then they can redeem those tokens for actual money, right? So, for example, someone in the community last month um, earned $200 worth of tokens. And that makes sense because they contribute the most to the community. Someone else who who might um, get more value from the community paid the normal $39 a month fee and they didn't earn any tokens. But that's fine because they, for them, that $39 a month is probably worth like $200 a month with the amount of value they, they um, get from the community. So what tokens are essentially doing here is creating like an equilibrium mechanism. What, what I mean by that is the people who contribute the most get rewarded um, and the people who gain the most just stay paying their, their usual amount. So I feel like without tokens, it would be really hard to do that. But with tokens, that kind of becomes possible. Where does the money that's generated for those tokens come from? Does that come from the people who are paying the subscription and then it's re, redistributed in a way that is dependent upon the contributions? Yeah, exactly. The idea is like the way we profit isn't by, we don't want to take people's subscription money. The only reason we have a subscription payment is because we think it makes the community stronger. We think that when people pay, they contribute more. If people no longer want to keep contributing, the fact that they're paying will probably mean they leave the community, which is healthy. That's healthy churn. So the way we get the money to pay out the token rewards is exactly right through the subscriptions. All that money goes back to rewards. And again, what tokens are allowing us to do here is to distribute um, all this money in a systematic way towards the people who contribute the most. And the reason that's important, right, is say someone was in the community and they were contributing 10 times more than everyone else, um, but they were still paying for the community, it wouldn't like make a heap of sense. So tokens here allow us to um, align, align incentives in that way. And I guess the other thing, like our, our goal long-term will be to grow the value of the token in the public markets. And what that requires is everyone in the community to do a really good job of making the community as good as possible. 
So again, that aligns incentives. Everyone holds part of the token. Everyone holds like a stake in the community, which means everyone is incentivized to help grow the community. Same with the founders. We all, the way we want to monetize long-term, we're not sure yet, but it's probably through tokens. So we all hold tokens and we're incentivized to then make the community as good as possible because only through growing it for all of us does the token become valuable. How do you measure contribution or how do you define contribution? Because a lot of different individuals, and we were speaking about it before, that a lot of people have very different nature. How do you define and measure contribution within the group so that you can redistribute in a fair way? Yeah, it's a really good question. We're still like exploring it. We're not, we're not sure on the way we're going to do it yet. Um, I'll tell you how we're kind of thinking about it. So right now we have defined tasks that can earn tokens. For example, if someone hosts an event for the community, they can earn tokens for that event, depending on the amount of people who show up. If someone helps someone else get a job, they can earn tokens. And we have like a list of all these different tasks which can earn people tokens. And the challenge with this is that we never want tokens to replace intrinsic motivation. There's this interesting experiments that was done. Um, they're like two groups of people in the experiment and they're both going to donate blood, right? They've both already volunteered to donate blood. When they get to the blood donation place, one of these groups is given $100 and they're like, we're giving you $100 as a thank for donating blood. I don't know the exact monetary amount. The other group are just told, thank you so much for your kindness and coming here today to donate blood. The group that was not given the money donated more. And the reason why is that sometimes when you introduce a monetary incentive, it can override the intrinsic motivation incentive. So that's something we're going to have to toy with and balance. We're launching the token basically in a week. So we haven't started testing what works yet. So that's something we have to toy with and balance. The other way tokens are awarded will initially be subjective because there are a lot of things that are really hard to codify. In the long term, let's call it like after a year, after we've tested what works and what doesn't, we're hoping we can come to some sort of like codified consensus that allows us to distribute tokens in a fair manner. I think that's really important. And I also think that the incentive of the token, the financial incentive could often lead to people wanting to output quantity over quality. And that plays back into the idea of intrinsic motivation rather than just contributing as much as possible from a quantity sense. People would rather contribute in terms of quality and actually put more meaningful content into the community and actually provide more value so that the people who are subscribing are getting more value rather than just getting more information. Yeah, you're right. Like something we'll never be able to do, we'll never be able to say, tokens are tied to the number of your posts, right? You'll have to be things that distinctly add value from the quality standpoint. Um, so I think, I think that's really important. If someone was wanting to get involved in Next Chapter, how would they do it and why should they do that? Yeah, so um, we have like two pillars of the business. One is the community and each quarter we have a community intake where they can just fill out a really short five-minute application form online. The second pillar of the business is our free content. 
So this is like our newsletter with 7,000 subscribers. And the motivation for creating um, this free content, this is our original motivation, is that we saw that the difference between where someone gets to in life is often the result of like one or two experiences early on that expose you to the idea of personal growth. Like for me, it was in year 10, I had a mentor in year 10 and he exposed me to personal development. And look, without that experience, I'm pretty sure I'd probably be in like a very different place to where I am today. So the purpose of our free content, our newsletter, is to share everything we have learned, everything we're continuing to learn, and to expose as many people as possible early on to the idea of personal growth and performance and um, choosing the right career. And you can find that at nextchapter.to. Um, that's, the, that's the website. So that's nextchapter.to. Yeah, plug, plug for the newsletter. I highly recommend it. No bias. Uh, is that aimed at a certain age group of people? Is it mainly just for people looking to get a start in their career towards the end of high school and university? Or is it really open to anyone of any age? Um, look, it's open to people of any age. Like I, like the initial audience was younger, people getting started. I've personally probably done like, I don't know, 10 jobs or something now. And if I wasn't um, a writer, I would actually subscribe to the newsletter. So I would still get a lot of value. And I think the reason why is it's very much performance oriented advice as well, right? Um, it's about communication, negotiation, um, all sorts of things that are like, relevant for everyone. It's not just careers advice. And the reason why is because communication advice, negotiation advice, commentary about say body language or commentary about um, the best principles for learning or time management, they're like universally relevant, right? For anyone who wants to improve, they're universally relevant. So no, we don't have a defined age group I'd recommend it to. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to be to be providing to people because one thing that I think the school system and the university system lacks is actually providing people with an understanding of transferable skills, uh, skills around learning, skills around decision-making, skills around how to communicate. It's all kind of implied in the work that you do, but you never actually learn those transferable human interaction skills, which really can be a lot more important than your typical information skills or, or skills with regards to a particular topic or idea. Yeah, I reckon it's so true, right? There's that Charlie Munger saying, which is to the man with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And like, if, you, if you're if you at university and you're doing a commerce degree, essentially you're you're the person with the hammer and you're, you're pushed down a route where it looks like everything should be addressed the same way or it looks like, you're pushed down a route where you're funneled into only like very set careers. Um, same with teachers in high school, they're taught a very specific skill set. So for them, they, they deal with, um, well, they, they teach everyone in line with that skill set. I think maybe a better way of actually phrasing that is, is like the specialist doctor, right? Like if a doctor is, I don't know, a, a um, let's say a physio, but they specialize in, hip problems if you have a problem with your foot or you have a problem with your knee or you have a problem with your back it's probably going to be a hip problem because that's what they specialize in so um coming back to it i think where i'm going with all this is that 
lots of disciplines of learning at school and at university are very siloed. Your teachers are the one with a hammer and they try and teach everyone similarly. You yourself pursued a lot of different options from what I've read in your gap year. Talk to us a little bit about that gap year, why you took it and why you decided to go down different avenues of learning before the typical structural university learning. Yeah, so um, retrospectively, I call it like a learning gap year because it, it sounds more interesting than, oh, I spent a couple of months in Europe traveling with my mates and skiing with, and then a couple of months in Japan skiing with my brother, which I also did. Um, but look, there was, there was probably... 70% of the year that I spent in Sydney just trying to learn an upskill. And my philosophy was exactly what we we're just talking about, which is that at school and at university, your learning is very siloed. It's very much learning the discipline which your tutors are instructed you to teach. Um, whereas on the gap year, my goal was to get these like broader, more general skills. So learning how to learn, learning how to be better at time management, um, learning how to learning uh, mental models, right? Learning like the Daniel Kahneman thinking fast and slow content, learning like the Charlie Munger content. So I, I like to recommend a gap year to a lot of people. Um, and the reason why is that if all you do all your life is stay in very like structured systems, school, university, your first job out of university, you don't really get the time or the opportunity to think about things um, more broadly to gain the, as we spoke about, like those soft skills, um, communication, et cetera, sales, marketing, the soft skills that um, are really powerful in every career you choose. So I'd highly recommend a gap year. I actually on my website have another article about my gap year. And at the, at the bottom of that article, I have like a four step roadmap for if I was taking my gap year again, what would I do? How would I structure a gap year? So that they're like, they're my thoughts um, on the gap year. Is that something you'd recommend most people pursue? If, if I was to say, what's your general advice for an 18-year-old coming out of high school? Is that one of the first things you'd recommend? Yeah, so um, let's start with the matching your career to your nature point. So let's, let's presume, like, as, as the assumption to work with, let's presume people are like us, they're motivated to learn and grow and improve. If someone falls into that box, that's their nature, then I would 100% recommend a gap year and I'd recommend checking out that four-step roadmap. I'd also recommend several other things if you're just leaving high school and you're motivated. Um, the first is to join commun online communities with people who are a few steps ahead of you. So early work is one of those communities, plug uh, Dan Brockwell, Marina Wu and John O'Herman. They're three legends who run early work. That's one word, early work. Um, Lattice work is another online community. The generalist community is another online community. And then there are like hundreds of discords. And the value of these communities is that you're exposed to hundreds of ideas by actual people. And I feel like if you're actually surrounded by the ideas through people rather than just books, it's people that, changes, that change the way you act. It's people that change what's normal. So I'd highly recommend joining all those communities, or at least, at least early work out of the ones I mentioned. Then I'd also recommend for someone with a similar life nature to us is to start a podcast. 
And I'd say, I'd say for anyone starting a podcast, your goal doesn't have to be to make it massive. Um, your goal doesn't even need to be to get thousands of views. I would just say doing it just to chat to interesting people, doing it just to practice putting content out into the world is something most people should do. Like there's, there's basically zero downside to doing that. So that's the other thing I'd recommend. So summing them up, yes, gap year. Um, yes to joining communities and then yes to starting a podcast. Well, I'm glad to think that you that you like the idea of starting a podcast. <laughs> Reassures in my mind. Um, I couldn't agree more with your podcast. That's essentially what I've tried to do through this is open up another avenue of learning and open up another avenue of networking. Not networking in the sense that I hope that people I interview are giving me a job or that it's purely transactional. Networking in the sense that you're developing connections with people and building relationships with people and broadcasting them to society which keeps you accountable as to what you're talking about as well how important do you think it is to view networking as not transactional and as actually a sharing of ideas and the building of a relationship between like-minded people or people who are even a little bit ahead of you or a few stages ahead of you yeah i'd say if i look just from my own experience the people who have been valuable for me in a network i'd never I'd never even reached out to really with the purpose of networking. I'd reached out to because we had some common interest or because I was curious about learning a specific thing from them. And then it kind of went from there. So I think, I think networking is a bit of a dirty word. The better word is probably like relationship building or meeting interesting people. Um, and if you approach it with that frame of meeting people you're genuinely interested in learning from, who you like share interests with, that's when I think that you actually gel, you'll vibe with each other. And then that person, even if they're several steps ahead of you, will be willing to help you. So I think, I think that's probably what I'd say about networking. Um, there, is, there is potentially a time for more transactional networking, and that could be, oh, I don't even know. Like one argument is that if you're trying to get into investment banking, then be slightly more deliberate with reaching out to people. I think I think that's okay. It's kind of like a prerequisite to get into certain industries, but I don't really think you're building your network by reaching out to someone asking them about their experience in investment banking. Like it might help you get in, it might help you learn, but those people, since you're not reaching out to them with the lens of like friendship or relationship building, it's probably build the network, which is really just like a people you are close with and are happy to chat with. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And one thing I like to do is to think of, everyone's heard the phrase, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. But I actually like the idea of thinking, it's not about who you know, it's about who knows you. And generally speaking, even though they might know you in a purely transactional phrase, sense rather, if they actually know you because you built a relationship with them and they actually have a relationship with you, then I think a lot more opportunities are going to come. So there's always an opportunity and always a time for transactional networking, but it's a lot more important to build a relationship so that you don't necessarily know someone, but they know you because they'd be networking or having people try to network with so many, having so many people try to network with them, people in high up positions, that it's more important that they know you than you know them, at least for the long term. Yeah, and I'd say um, it's, it's not who you know, it's who knows you. The trick to helping people know you 
is to put content out there, right? Like we can have a better conversation now because I've put content out there. You've, you've clearly read a few things I've put in my blog, um, which means that like when people reach out to me having, having read that content, they can find common interests really quickly. They can know how I think really quickly. So I think to tick that box of it's not who you know, it's who knows you, creating content, um, joining communities, starting a podcast are like the most powerful things. And I agree with you that that is probably more valuable than it's who you know. Definitely. And I think that's probably the most important thing people can do is build relationships with like-minded individuals through podcasting, through, through communities. And it's always going to lead to some sort of value down the line. You might not know it, but it certainly will. Uh, did you have any final thoughts? Uh, anything else that you think while we're on the topic of advice for, for younger people or for people looking into deciding on a career or anything like that, do you have any other thoughts or pieces of advice? Um, I'd say like the only constant in the world are things internal to your nature and how you craft your nature. And the most fundamental of those is curiosity and learning. And if I look at most people who... Uh, people others look up to the single commonality is that they have a curious drive to learn to improve and that's probably what I'd leave people with um always be curious and keep learning I love it that's a fantastic way of putting it uh just before we wrap up do you have uh where can people find you where uh we spoke a lot about your blog about next chapter you've got a a lot of different things going on. So just a quick summary, where can people find your information? Uh, where can they find some of your writings and how can they get involved in next chapter? Yeah, everyone listening, um, Will is a legend and I'm sure anyone who's listening to this is similarly super interesting. So like shoot me a message on LinkedIn at any time. That's, you'll be able to find me under my name. Uh, you can message me on Twitter also under my name. And then if you want to find more about some of the stuff I spoke about, how I think and write, there, there's um, maxmarchioni.com, which is my website. And recently I've put out into the wild footnotes.maxmarchioni.com, which is, which is like not thoughtful writing at all. Literally, it's just like lists, um, lists for all sorts of random stuff, whether it's my like top 30 favorite books and books I recommend for different purposes, or even like my top 30 favorite restaurants. Um, so it's like all sorts of just like random lists. It's a bit of fun. So that's footnotes maxmarchioni.com great well max thank you so much for taking the time to come on today i love the chat and i think it'll provide a lot of value for people of all ages but particularly anyone wanting to take that next step towards their career and really figure out what they want to do into the future no cheers we all absolutely had a blast thanks for having me on thanks so much max cheers